Hi, everyone. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to the Rerooted podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. We are now in uh, late August, still in the middle of the COVID pandemic, and very much still in the middle of uh, the uprising, the protest movement, Black Lives Matter, and really uh, trying to find a way to balance all of what is happening in the world um, and how we're sort of holding our learnings and our knowledge and our leaning into what this moment is bringing to us. Where, where, where can we learn? Where can we lean in? What, what is it here to teach us? Um, I just want to name that I'm on Nipmuc land right here in Massachusetts, uh, which is where I'm uh, hailing from recording this podcast here today. Uh, the people who are the rightful um, you know, caretakers of this land. And uh, this is uh, where I grew up. I also want to name that my pronouns now, thanks to Josen Tamora Gibson, are uh, she, we, us. And uh, he really gave me that uh, sort of uh, opportunity when he was saying this. I heard him say that these were his pronouns, um, that, that it's not just about the me and the I, me, mine, but it's also about the collective. And I think that that's part of what we're talking about is where we find division and separation and how those are constructed and perpetuated systemically over time. And then how does that show up in us as individuals and how we can usually, uh, you know, use our intention, our mindfulness awareness to kind of, oh, open to this we, this us, this collective, and what does it mean to really belong to one another and move toward our collective liberation. So today's guest is talking about something that I think, you know, some people may find a little bit, hmm, this is an interesting topic. I wonder what they're going to do with that. And I don't really know what we're going to do with it either, but I'd like to invite in a curiosity, a certain kind of a conversation where we're exploring, right? We're not having a judgment about whether it's right or wrong or good or bad, just like we're, we're not saying it's right or wrong or good or bad to talk about words like racism, to talk about things like incest, to talk about things like, you know, climate change or, or global warming. We can, we, can, we can talk about things that sometimes make us feel a little bit contracted. And today's guest is uh, Dr. Diane Goodman. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, issues that pertain to the Black experience in the United States and to um, the ways in which there is and maybe sometimes isn't so much solidarity between uh, people of Jewish uh, orientation, religion, descent. Um, however, Diane explains this, and she is by no means the spokesperson for all people um, that are Jewish. However, I am inviting her in to have this conversation because we met several years ago. She's a trainer, consultant, professor, speaker, author, and activist, and she works to collaborate with individuals and organizations to build consciousness, competence, and commitment to create equity and inclusion. She's been doing this for 30 years, and uh, she and her associates have worked with a wide range of organizations about building capacity around these issues and using a participatory approach. She helps people increase their awareness, knowledge, and skills to foster and sustain greater equity and inclusion. So welcome, uh, Dr. Goodman, Diane. It's so lovely to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us on Rerooted. Oh, it's a pleasure being back and, and speaking with you today. Yeah, and, and, and thank you. How would you like to describe your social location? I gave a few pointers, although not the whole kit and caboodle over here. Um, how would you like to self-describe uh, your social location? Well, also just I uh, use the pronouns she and they. Um, so I am a cisgender woman who is of um, Jewish descent, Ashkenazi or Eastern European descent. And 
what I want to make clear is um, Jews are such a varied group that it's really difficult to talk about Jews or the Jews, as I sometimes hear, because um, there are Jews with hugely ranging different religious identities, from Jews who are atheists um, to Jews who are highly religious and ultra-Orthodox, um, and everywhere in between on that continuum. Um, there are Jews who claim it more as a cultural or a secular identity versus a religious identity. And that's more where I placed myself. I did have some religious Jewish training. I was bat mitzvahed. Um, but really, at this point, I see myself more as a cultural Jew. That clearly is the lineage that I come from. Both of my parents were Jewish. My grandparents were Jewish. So clearly, I, I come from that legacy and that tradition and that heritage. Um, and yet, the religious aspects are not what I most um, connect with. And I know that that's not uncommon. Um, I know there are many Jews who are very aligned with Buddhism, um, and that also resonates for me. And my family has been here on both sides since the very early 1900s. So many Jews have come over um, at different points in history for many different reasons and for many different places. My family all um, immigrated from Eastern Europe, Russia, Poland, again around 1900. So my grandparents were all either born here or came here very young. So they, you know, lived here. My parents were born here. Um, I was born here. And so that is a particular Jewish story. Um, clearly other Jews came here um, later, um, some earlier. Um, certainly people had more connection to the Holocaust. None of my family members were directly involved in the Holocaust in more extended ways. So that also is not a story that for me, um, I live with that trauma as directly as other people may. So all the way of saying that, I'll share my particular perspectives, um, but really reminding people that I speak out of my perspective and that the range of Jewish perspectives um, and what that means to people is really vast. Yeah. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And I really um, I love the honesty in that. And again, we're just exploring this to have a conversation, right? We would have different conversations with different people um, from the Jewish diaspora, just like we would have different conversations with people from the Pan-African diaspora. Um, and, and, and so this is just a, a portal to opening to even begin to say, as I did with um, a woman who's a Korean American therapist um, for my other uh, online web TV show called Inside Out, when we were exploring Asian American and Black American solidarity or what gets in the way of that solidarity around issues as we're sort of investigating and unpacking what's happening with the uprising and the protest. And it kind of, you know, begged the question for me, like, because I've heard many times folks who are um, Jewish in this time say, yeah, and we know what that's like because this is what our experience was um, with um, the Holocaust. And I guess I'm sort of maybe, I don't know if this is exactly, this is where I want to get to. I don't know if it's the place to start, but it's, it's, it's sort of the question that's been burning for me is when a black person who's been in this country for a long time and has experienced, um, you know, the 
the institutional, the, the, the legacy of institutional racism um, and enslavement and whatnot, hears that from perhaps a well-intentioned or a well-meaning or attempting to be relational um, Jewish perhaps friend or colleague, um, oftentimes that can feel like it just doesn't land. It just doesn't, doesn't feel like the person is being met or heard. And so that's sort of the fundamental question is how do we find a way of connecting or understanding in that space of um, yes, trauma here, yes, trauma here, and also not the same trauma. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's what's really key. Um, and I talk about this a lot in the work that I do is how can we use our own experiences of oppression or being marginalized to connect with, to relate into, to empathize with other people's experience of those um, experiences of feeling marginalized or oppressed without equating. Mm. And I think that's what's critical is how do we use that as a window, not as a way to say, I know just what it's like for you, because we don't. And so one of the things that I'm interested in are what are the similarities across different forms of oppression. There's some similar ways that patterns of treatment, patterns of behavior that happen when we're part of marginalized groups. That's something I'm really interested in because it helps us see the interconnection of systems of domination. And every form of oppression is unique. It has its own unique history. It has its own unique manifestations. It has its own ways that it has been um, manifested in the United States in particular. And so I think we always have to be really careful that it is not about equating the experiences. It's about how can I use my experience to relate into, to understand your experience but valuing your experience as your experience and my experience as my experience. And mm. so I think that's where there's a fundamental disconnect um, that almost always will create a rupture um, when people feel like their experience is being appropriated or their experience is being equated in a way that does not feel true for people's realities. Um, and mm. so what I find helpful as I work with Jews is like it's a both end, as you just said, there's trauma here and there's trauma there. I mean, there is anti-Semitism. There has been anti-Semitism for thousands of years. There continues to be anti-Semitism. Um, you know, we've seen that in some very dramatic ways, you know, by synagogues, you know, shootings in synagogues and synagogues being defaced and the rise of anti-Semitic incidents. So, I mean, in our current reality and certainly historically, not only the Holocaust, anti-Semitism is real. And there's still beliefs globally about, you know, Jews controlling, you know, the world, Jews being proxies um, or getting proxies to do the work. Um, we hear that with the alt-right, um, you know, Jews will not replace us. So there is a very real reality of anti-Semitism. And that is different than the very real reality of racism and anti-Blackness. Yeah. And so I think we can hold both and understand both and most importantly understand how they serve um, to sustain white supremacy. Mm. Because always when you get people from marginalized groups pitted against each other, who does that benefit? Yeah. And it will it. always benefit the people who are in power. And so if we care about eliminating white supremacy and anti-Semitism, 
then I think that is such a harmful um, way to be approaching um, each other. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I really appreciate all of what you're saying. I'm just curious, since you do so many trainings and workshops and different organizations and settings, do you have an example of maybe a real-time like situation where you've seen this play out maybe not so well and maybe where it's played out like a little better, where there's been a learning or something there? Does that anything mm-hmm. come to mind there? Um, yes, in the sense that Another sort of broad principle is that often it's hard for people to hear someone else's pain when they feel their pain hasn't been recognized. Yes. Can we just pause on that? It is hard sometimes for people to hear someone else's pain when their own pain hasn't been recognized. I think that's really important. Thank you for saying that when they feel that it hasn't been sufficiently recognized, when they feel as though it hasn't been met in a way that they feel understood. Mm-hmm. And again, like as a therapist, you know, I'm talking about like attachment theory and the ways that we're safe, seen, and soothed and the way in which we feel secure and we build secure attachment and the ways in which being held and being attuned to and having that empathy where we can resonate with and then, you know, feel from the other person's perspective, but not drown in it, still know that we're an autonomous being. So all of those things I think are really valuable to consider, but that it's about, wow, am I... Uh, does does my opening to your pain negate the fact that I still have it and I don't feel like I've been understood? Yeah. Right. And it, it gets complicated in so many ways when we're talking about the experience, um, and again, of Jews who have been racialized as white or identify as white. I just let me back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. There before we sure. Yeah. This conversation, because I want to acknowledge Jews are of all ethnic and racial backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the US, it's um, the majority is Jews of European ancestry, um, Ashkenazi Jews, particularly Eastern European that are called Ashkenazi Jews. So when people think of Jews in the United States, that's who they tend to think about. I want to acknowledge that there are Jews of all different racial backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and who come from all different parts of the world. Um, there's Sephardic Jews that have more of a uh, from Spain, um, Jews that are Ethiopian Jews, they're Chinese Jews, they're Indian Jews. Um, and so I want to be really careful that when we're talking about this conversation, um, I think um, we're referring particularly to Jews of European ancestry who identify as white or have been racialized as white yeah. um, in this conversation, but to acknowledge that is not the experience of all Jews. And within the Jewish community, there's certainly their own tensions between white Jews and Jews of color. Yes. How Jews of color feel within the Jewish community. Um, So I just want to- No, thank you for that. It's a good, it's an important distinction and clarification. Thank you. Um, So when I'm talking about sort of Jews, I'm really talking about Ashkenazi Jews, Mm -hmm. uh, which in certainly in the Northeast is the most predominant dynamic, but even historically um, with the relationship of black and Jews has been particularly with Ashkenazi Jews. So what gets complicated about Jews, white Jews, being able to um, hear the experience and the pain of um, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous people of color, particularly Black folks, is 
one, the sense of, is my pain being acknowledged? Is my oppression being acknowledged? Um, and so um, that's one piece of it. It gets complicated by that for many Ashkenazi Jews in the United States, there has been um, economic mobility. That mm. I, my family came with nothing, but they built businesses and I became middle class. And that yeah. happened for lots of other Ashkenazi Jews. Again, not for all Jews. Not all Jews are rich. Jews are all economic backgrounds. Right. Um, but there is a disproportionate percentage that are middle and upper middle class and some wealthy. So there's that complication of being Jewish, but also having had access to whiteness and had access to economic privilege. Yeah. So often it's the piece of recognizing the Jewish piece without also recognizing the class and race pieces that complicate that and are intersectional. If we can think about our identities as being intersectional, we're not simply one thing. We are an intersection of things, of identities and experiences. Um, and so when we just focus on one piece, sometimes it leaves out some other, in other important pieces to understanding our experience or other people's experience. Hmm. And because there has been a history of Jews and Blacks having an alliance, but because Jews could assimilate into whiteness and Black people could not, and there was economic mobility for white Jews that was not for Blacks, and that some white Jews um, ended up more aligned with their economic interests or their racial interests, that there's created some ruptures. Again, there are Jewish scholars and, and Black scholars who speak to this obviously much more extensively. And sure. we're, just uh, we're just naming some of the things that you've seen, yeah. Um, but all that makes these conversations much more fraught because it's also, can I trust you? So I know for Black folks and people, it's like, can I trust you as a Jew? There's sort of this assumption, I'm a Jew, I'm, I'm liberal, uh, I vote Democratic, and you know, I, you know, my people marched with Martin Luther King. Um, and yet, because there's been a history where that has not always shown up in that way, there's distrust from people of color. Um, so there, just to, to name some of the complicated dynamics that happen when people come together. So to get back to what some things can be helpful is to acknowledge some of this, you know, is to acknowledge that it's complicated. Yeah, just naming it. Naming it. Um, to acknowledge that, yes, there is anti-Semitism, but that does not negate the ways in which Jews can have access to white privilege. Um, sometimes it's more, um, people are more comfortable thinking about even if they can't fully claim a white identity, because again, Jews have been racialized in different ways. Um, racialized as not white, racialized as white, had access to white privilege only to a certain degree. Um, some people, you know, say there's degrees of whiteness and degrees of white privilege. And Jews have some, but not the same as if you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, and we can still look at ways that Jews are not allowed access to certain spaces. Right. So sometimes it's helpful for, to recognize that there are degrees of whiteness and white privilege and Jews don't always have full access, but we have some access. Right, right, right. So it's, <clears throat> yeah, I think that there's this, 
<clears throat> piece that I've seen that comes up, and this is just my observation. Again, this is just my direct experience. I'm not a, across the board here. Is that <clears throat> if someone is trying to sort of appear to be in solidarity with, um, you know, as you say, like I marched, like I've heard this, I've heard conversations. You know, I lived through the '60s. I marched through John Martin Luther King. You know, I I have a biracial child. I married a black woman or a black man. I'm, you know, I'm liberal or I'm whatever it is. And then the to be met with the idea of, and you don't have the experience of what it is to live in a black body in a racialized society in the United States. And so there is a part of you that may have uh, a certain awareness intellectually around the fact that, you know, there's, there's something happening here, but that it's not, um, that you can't equate. They're not equivalent, like you say, the experience. And so I'm wondering then how do we, and then there's the class piece, as you say, about the financial things that structurally, I mean, when we look at, and this is, again, the invitation is for people who are white racially advantaged to lean into actually studying the history as I've done over the last five years and learned so much. I was ignorant myself, as I was telling you earlier off camera, that like, the way in which things like policies like redlining, policies like the legalization of property ownership of black bodies and the breeding of black women to create more property in the form of black children that were then owned by white landowners and that this was families, centuries of this, when you begin to grok that and that there's penalties legally, penalties and rewards for people who have white skin, regardless of, of how, you know, when they came or, right, like was all this whole thing of when the Irish became white, when like the Italians like me became white, when the Jews became white, we know all of that, right, that there's these pieces, but that it was a constructed racial division, that that particular thing has 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 continued to be like the thing that I feel people don't get around the idea of, but but everybody has access now. And I'm like, on paper, but centuries of these divisions and, and legal parameters and, and and whatnot, they affect people's minds. We're a mindfulness network here. They affect people's responses and the way they think about things and the way in which we we show up. So all of that is to say, in a micro place, what do we do then when there's that rupture? What do we, how, do we, how do we work with that? And what's helpful and not helpful or skillful or not skillful in Buddhist language um, in that kind of a thing where there's a desire to lean in and understand, it's a messy conversation, and we're trying to make it better, not worse. Well, I, I think it's really important, and this is what I try to do when I work with white Jews, is to both recognize the reality of anti-Semitism and recognize the reality of white privilege and that Jews have been able to assimilate into whiteness. And I wanna say with costs, I mean, just for any group, as you mentioned, the Irish, you mentioned the Italian, in order to sort of get the benefits of whiteness, that there's stuff we give up. We give up our cultures to some degree. You know, we give up aspects of our um, ethnicities. So I want to acknowledge that there's real costs. And I think Jews have made that bargain um, to be able to assimilate into whiteness and the benefits of whiteness, but at real cost to some of the Jewish values. Because I think as Jews have assimilated further into whiteness and into economic privilege, that often with those have gone um, 
some of the values that have deep rooted in Jewish teachings and tradition about mm. social justice, mm. about repairing the world, about our responsibility to take care of each other. Um, and so for every group, I think there's some costs as we assimilate further into whiteness and the benefits that whiteness gives us. Mm. Having said that, we still have the benefits of whiteness. And that is a reality that we need to reckon with. Um, you know, I've had the benefit, as you said, about all these policies. Again, my grandparents could build businesses. They could get loans or support to do that. People would go to their businesses. We had a, you know, a loan after my father came back from the Korean War to buy a house in the suburbs. I mean, it fits this trajectory that we, we could do that, right. um, get government support and mortgages to do that, which gave us economic privilege. All things that were not available to black people. And so that is a piece of my reality and other Jews' reality that we need to own. Um, and we've had access also then to higher education. While certainly there were quotas at some point in history, you know, where there were Jewish quotas, um, that, that those avenues by and large then became open to Jews. Um, and so we had access to higher ed. So I think it is really, again, the both and nice the anti-Semitism, but really helping um, Jews who do have white privilege to understand that white privilege. So it's not equating. So we can own the places in which we have privilege, in which we've been advantaged and continue to be. And at the same time, recognize there are ways in which, you know, we still face anti-Semitism. Yeah, I think that that's really important. And I think that, you know, this idea of... Um, I think, you know, there's something there. Again, it's hurt, right? It's hurt. There's hurt. Um, when I, I, I you know, I, I've seen it and I felt it. I felt it even yesterday. I was telling you off camera and I'll share it a little bit. Um, I was in a um, sort of what would be like a, a spiritual mindfulness, you know, trauma modality kind of community of which I'm a part of many of them in a um, sort of larger container of a retreat setting. Of course, everything's online now for COVID. And I really was kind of refraining from speaking much because I'm, as I said, multi-ethnic, but was ignorant about the depth of what we're talking about in terms of policies of redlining or blacks being not getting the GI bill when they came home from the war and like people like just this whole thing that sets up systems of inequality based on, you know, I didn't know what I know now because I've actually studied and read a lot of books and taken classes. And I feel it differently, obviously, also because I'm more in tune with the pain of what that means. But that yesterday I was watching or in this, you know, group and um, I was just sort of watching and I'm saying, you know, I'm the only person of color here. There's an international audience, which is interesting. A lot of people were from Israel. A lot of people were from Argentina. A lot of people were Jews from Argentina, which is interesting, right? So culturally I'm South American, but I'm, you know, Jewish and I'm white in that culture. Or, you know, a lot of um, folks were from Italy or from wherever they were, but they're white. And then there's me. And then we're having this conversation about diversity. That was the topic of the day. And I'm listening and I'm sort of watching how they're processing this. And I'm not saying too much. And then the conversation opens up and I'm still sort of just watching in silent because I didn't feel like there was anything there that, you know, would, would, would stick or land that I could really offer. And I'm like, you know what, if you're, they're not ready or at that level of conversation, then, you know, I'm, 
I'm not going to say much, but when I was invited into conversation and I shared some of the things that you and I are talking about now, what came back was, you know, uh, well, you know, Bernie Glassman did this, you know, uh, thing about going back to, you know, the concentration camps and, you know, it was that whole like, and I won't call it a false equivalency, but to your point, and I just, again, felt like, wow, I, I, yes, and and that that's happening in real time. And that happened with me as I am when I've been invited by people who are asking me to speak about what it is to explain to my degree of understanding the Black experience in America, right? And this moment of why diversity and inclusion is important. So I think it happens automatically with people. And I think that for maybe some Jewish people who are finding themselves in that place to understand what it's like to be on the other end of receiving that. So I'm the person who's black that you're saying this to, and I'm saying, hmm, yeah, (laughs) this doesn't feel like a safe friendship anymore. And I feel like I need to pull away or a safe community Mm -hmm. anymore. And then the next piece that comes is, well, you're angry. Well, you don't understand, or you don't want to be friends or, and so how do you deal with that? Well, no one wants to feel like their experience is being invalidated and dismissed um, on any way. Um, So I know that there's tremendous, I mean, just in my experience talking with people, um, my uh, BIPOC friends, particularly black friends um, and colleagues, there's tremendous frustration. working with white folks, especially white leaders, who say that they want to be advancing racial equity in their organizations or or in society or in their communities, um, but again, can't own the white aspects of themselves and use that way to deflect. So, you know, if we're going to count it in spiritual language, it's, you know, what is the spiritual bypassing um, that people are doing? Um, What is the unhealed trauma I think that people have? What are the ways in which almost always it's easier to see ourselves as a victim than as um, perpetrators of or um, enablers of oppression? Um, Interesting. So like, it's hard for me to hold that I could be a victim in one circumstance, but also an oppressor in another. And most of us are. Mm -hmm. I mean, often I'll have people think about our full range of social identities. And most people both occupy positions, part of dominant culture groups or privileged groups and marginalized groups. And that can be very helpful going back to, we talk about what are the windows that get created because you know, I know what it's like to be a woman. I don't know what it's like to be black or Latina. But when I know the anger I have, when I see sexism, and then I see the anger people of color have around racism, it's not that that's the same, but it's like, oh, I get that when I watch the Me Too movement and the story after story after story after story of how women have been victimized and sexually assaulted um, and what happens for me it's like, oh, how does that help me connect to the experience of Black people watching people being killed um, and unfairly treated in the criminal justice system? Mm-hmm. So again, it's not the same. It's, but how does that offer me a window? 
similarly when I'm part of dominant groups as a, as a white person um, and as a heterosexual person, how does that help me relate to other people from dominant groups? So whether it's men or whether it's Christians around anti-Semitism, um, you know, I know the struggle it is for me and people like me to understand racism and the defensiveness that happens and how it's a lot easier for me to talk about my oppression as a woman than it is to talk about, you know, how I enact. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that too. As a white person. Right. I've seen a lot of that too. Like I know what it's like because I'm a woman and also from white Jewish women, I've seen it also. So it's kind of compounded. Yes. Yes. And again, it goes back to the same principle of we do not know and we cannot equate. And how do we use our experience as a way to relate? And relating is not equating. Relating is not equating. Yeah, relating is not equating. And so we need to be able to, and this is where mindfulness practices are really helpful or other kind of um, spiritual practices, is how do we sit with our discomfort? How do we sit with hearing other people's stories and pain without going into the place of, but what about me? Yes. That's about the unhealed trauma. You know, that's about what's unhealed in ourselves, that we can't hold that, that we hear that as somehow a negation of our experience, or it evokes in us this response to have to be, but the what about me and what about my people? Um, And that takes, that takes work. It takes inner work to be able to have the resourcefulness and the spaciousness to be able to hold that. Yeah, yeah. I so appreciate what you're saying because it's exactly that. The But what about? And it could be whatever comes afterwards. And I've heard it so many times. But what about my experience as an immigrant? But what about my experience as a poor white person? But what about my experience as someone who had childhood sexual abuse in my history, but I'm a white person, right? And all of those are true and traumatic and they're also not. And, you know, I said this in a somatic experiencing training that I was assisting. I'm like, you know, it was a diverse training. It was in, the cohort was intentionally sort of trying to bring in into this community that otherwise doesn't often bring in a lot of um, racial diversity and also, um, you know, sort of, you know, differences in, in ability. Like, you know, we had, um, you know, sign language interpreters there and we had, you know, different kind of folks than you would perhaps if you weren't paying attention to being inclusive and, you know, equitable, um, you may not have such a diverse body that um, I just said, hey, this isn't the trauma Olympics. You know, we're not here in a competition of whose trauma is worse or better or more or less, but there's some value in that. And I think, as you say, it's the window and it's the portal. And I think this gets back to the spiritual place or the mindfulness place or the belonging place, like we belong to one another. And what I hear you saying now is, you doing your own work around your own trauma and leading into it helps you be more available in an embodied way to be able to show up and meet this moment in all of its complexity and uniqueness in a way that is felt and received that can be generative and collaborative. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to be doing our own work. We need to be doing our inner work. And as you said about how many 
classes, workshops, trainings that you've done. It's also learning. You know, it's also learning. It's having knowledge to appreciate our historical legacies that have shaped us and, and shaped the realities we live in today. So I'm going to push back. Oh, but you don't know anything about the Holocaust. That's like some, like, so, so someone's saying to me, you know, um, like you're telling me to do the work and to understand the black experience in the U.S. But what do you know about the Holocaust? What do you know about my people? Well, I think everybody should get more informed. I don't think it's a, it's a, I'm not going to, I'm not going to learn about blackness until you learn about the Holocaust. Um, you know, I don't think it's that kind of tit for tat, mm-hmm. you know, be, you know, I think, but I think we all need to understand, um, we all need to understand history. We all need to understand um, a broader perspective on different groups' experiences. So I think we all need to be educated, but I don't have to wait for you to get educated for me to get educated. Um, mm-hmm. and, and again, it comes back to what, what matter. I mean, I do racial justice work because I'm committed to our collective liberation. Mm. I don't do racial justice work because, you know, people of color are somehow going to be nicer to me or care more about anti-Semitism or care more about whatever I care about. So it's really looking at, and this, and this really speaks to Jewish values. I mean, if, if truly, um, Jews want to claim a sense of, you know, my people have always been on the side of social justice. My people, if not me personally, you know, have marched with Martin Luther King, have supported, um, you know, struggles, civil rights struggles, um, alliances with, with Black people. That grows out of a set of values. Mm-hmm. That grows out of a sense of vision for the world we want to be creating. There's an expression called tikkun olam, which is how- I was going to say it earlier. Yeah, I didn't want to because then I was like, no, they think I'm like being performative. So I didn't say it, but I do know that. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful yeah. intention. So if we want to be drawing on as Jews, you know, our Jewish traditions and teachings, then to me, that's what should guide us. Not have, do I think some black people have done enough around anti-Semitism? You know, do I think we should understand each other's struggles and histories? Yeah, I think we should. And I think that will enable us to be in solidarity more strongly. And I think we need the solidarity to overthrow oppressive systems. As I said, to overthrow white supremacy, which is oppressive to Jews and to, um, you know, people of color. Um, So I think, you know, solidarity is necessary to challenge forms of oppression. But to me, it needs to grow out of that commitment in those values and not what often does generate into more of a tit for tat. Well, you didn't show up for me, so I'm not showing up for you or you don't know about this. So I'm not going to learn about that. Um, Because again, who does that serve? Right, right. It's so interesting you're talking about solidarity because as I've done sort of more of the teaching, but the reading rather, um, you know, 
they don't teach you these things in school. You have to find it. The history's there, but you have to find it because you won't find it in fifth grade social studies class. Like it's just not happening. And um, one of the things that you learn about is Bacon's Rebellion, where there was a time in the 1600s where, you know, blacks and whites were sort of friendly with one another, laboring class, the, you know, indentured servitude class. White that was, yes. that, that, right. Mm-hmm. right. And that that then became something where that, there was the divide and conquer around racial lines so that those who are working in solidarity with one another and not having racial division, having friendship, having relationship, um, that that was created at that time to then divide so that some were given some, those with light white skin and others were denied, Mm -hmm. those with dark skin. And then, then we have the hierarchy of who has access to opportunity and privilege in a way and who is denied that. And then from that, all of the other laws and whatnot over time. So what you're speaking about in solidarity is what I'm trying to call attention to is it's not just a personal thing. It's a Mm -hmm. systemic Mm -hmm. thing that has been legalized and systematized over time. And if you actually look at what the laws are, I mean, there's many, many of them, Um, but like the Naturalization Act and other things like that, 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 that create who gets to be entitled to freedom, liberation, right? Like quite literally, like, you know, Mm -hmm. citizenship and liberation and who doesn't. Um, The other thing I wanted to say is that there's a similarity with this Tikkun Olam. There's a similarity about the collectivist culture mindset uh, that we find in, um, for example, African-American culture or in Latinx culture or in, uh, that isn't exactly what we find in more of that individualistic Western culture. And that the Jewish culture has more of that feeling of, you know, stickiness around like together and, um, you know, the importance of family, at least it feels to me in much the same way that like my Italian family you know, mm-hmm. does, right? But that, and that is that maybe a portal to connection and solidarity and belonging is finding the places where we, where we think alike. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where the cost of assimilation, mm-hmm. because those very qualities and orientations to each other um, get bought off by access to whiteness um, because the systems of white supremacy and whiteness are about individualism, are about materialism. It's about, um, you know, success for yourself. And so that's kind of the devil's bargain as for Jews and other groups who became white, again, very strategically by the white elite to create these kind of racial divisions. So there wasn't a challenge to the larger elite white Christian power structures, just what happened with Bacon's Rebellion. I mean, this has been a theme throughout the history of our country is, you know, how to ensure that marginalized folks are not connecting um, across class, across, you know, race. um, So the system stays in place for the people who are benefiting, which are white, wealthy Christian people um, in this country, um, historically and currently. And so, again, sort of allowing Irish to become white, Italians to be white, Jews to become white. There's there's a bargain that gets made implicitly mm. or explicitly to adopting more of the um, dominant white cultural values, which diminish some of the other values of people's communities. Um, and so that's, I think, where some of the shift has happened, where Jews had been more aligned in solidarity um, 
with oppressed groups, but as we've assimilated more into whiteness and into the class system, um, the capitalist class system, that those kinds of values um, are not rewarded mm. um, and other values are rewarded. And that has been a piece of what has created more ruptures um, you know, with other marginalized communities. So I think there really is value in um, groups generally, but certainly for Jews to really look at what are those cultural values? What is that sense of responsibility to each other? Um, that sense of community, um, the sense of repairing the world, and how do we hold on to those and see where those align with other groups who have other values? And certainly from a spiritual perspective, you know, basically all um, traditions in some way come down to, you know, how do we take care of each other? Mm -hmm. um, how do we take care of those in need. Um, so I think that really is important um, for, for Jews and I think others to be looking at because I think there are a lot of connections. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that still, whenever I do anti-racism work, um, especially where white folks are involved, it's disproportionately Jews. Mm. That, um, so while I think it's gotten more complicated, um, I still see, and for numerical, uh, you know, uh, representation, I mean, an over-representation of white Jews involved in civil rights, racial justice work. Yeah. It's and not surprising. Voting patterns, you know, we still see Jews doing that. So I also don't want to distort that Jews no longer care about things. Um, no, on the contrary, I think there is a deep, I mean, I, I see it. And I think that that's why it feels so weird when it happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that's, that's the, where the disconnect is, is like, wait, what? <laughs> but I think sometimes I see Jews rely on that legacy too. Well, I'm a Jew, so of course I'm liberal, and of course I'm progressive. Uh. Of course, you know, I'm connected to, you know, Black struggles. And I think it's challenging that of courseness um, and really looking at, okay, so how are you really showing up around that? Mm -hmm. um, what does that really mean and look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. That sort of moment to moment present awareness and checking in. Where am I today? I thought I was this, maybe I'm that. And, you know, I interviewed Dr. Janet Helms, who um, is a clinical, you know, researcher around these issues around racial equity. And she talks about the stages of racial identity development for white people and for black people. But, you know, sort of where we make contact, where we are in our awareness, you know, whether or not we're sort of in this place of being the good white liberal versus like actually like getting, you know, the, the color blindness that I don't see race, I'm non-racist and how that's not helpful, that it has to actually be anti-racist, which is sort of uprooting in much the same way the Buddha would talk about like, uprooting the weeds and then planting new seeds it's a both and right like you know and 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 then coming into this sense of like embodied collective belonging to one another and that that's really the goal but that that's sort of it's not the final stage and that it's the end point it's where the real expansion if you will can really start to you know unfold it's sort of where where the garden really starts to to, to flower you know 
Um, but you mentioned a lot about the assimilation piece, which I think is really important for people to, to consider and think about, because I know that I took a class called Before, we, Before They Were White or Before We Were White, Before We Were White, I think. In any case, and it really just invited you to kind of go back and unpack where you're from. <laughs> what does it mean? What do you know? What don't you know? What cultural pieces were lost for grounding, for connection? in having to become white. They showed quite literally, I think it was the Ford Motor Company, but I could be wrong, old pictures of like a melting pot cauldron, like literally like a big of like people like kind of going, it was sort of a fake cartoon or maybe it was a black and white, like a jokey thing, but like of people like kind of going in and, and their Slovak clothing, their beautiful red, you know, uh, scarves there and how all of these things. And then they came out as was done with the 60s scoop and with the indigenous residential schools and whatnot, you know, all of that beautiful, um, you know, uniqueness and cultural um, that all of that had to be put away for a little white cotton shirt and a pair of black pants. And that was that basically, you know, and this is part of assimilation and what gets lost in that, you know, and, and I think that, that that's important because there's grief there that through that grief, to your point about trauma work, people who are white racially advantaged in this white supremacist society can use as a window to the connection while honoring and holding their own pain in a way that doesn't negate it. Um, yeah. Okay. I'll stop there. Sorry. Cause what I really want to say, but can I just say one thing about the assimilation? Yeah. Because I think what's really important is who got to be assimilated yeah. because there were certain groups who could assimilate and there are people who could not assimilate. Black people have never had the opportunity to assimilate in, in, as, as, as a group. Right. Of, no, I get it. You yeah. know, I mean, individuals do things. So that, that's, and that's a really important distinction because I hear a lot of different white ethnic groups, including Jews say, you know, I came here with nothing. Our families built businesses. We prospered. Why can't they? And one of the reasons um, is, as I said, you know, we had all sorts of opportunities if we were willing to assimilate right. um, and to get the benefits and all the laws and policies that we could have access to that Black people never had those choices, never had those options and all the laws and policies that have worked to keep um, uh, black people in an oppressed role. So it's really important to be mindful of who even gets the opportunity to assimilate into whiteness and the benefits of that. Right. No, I appreciate that because I think that one of the other things that we were talking about is, um, and I think I just mentioned it even on this podcast was, you know, the South Asian community, the Asian community, like there's a certain sort of affiliation around assimilation, if you will, um, in some, and again, painting with a broad brush here, definitely not monolithic, definitely not the experience of everyone, depending on if you've been here as a Chinese person for over a century versus if you've, you know, been here for a recent immigrant or whatnot. But that there's, what has been told to me is that um, in some cases, there's this default, like, um, you know, merging into the whiteness that's available to people of Asian descent that isn't available, uh, you know, to people who are, for example, African, you know. Um, or Caribbean for that matter. Um, as we kind of, you know, maybe have another 10 minutes or so to talk, I'm curious about things like defense, defensiveness, which you mentioned, shame, which is part of all of this, and also like this 
<laughs> and you'll appreciate, I think, where I'm coming from with this is what is this business of, you know, being neurotic and, and, and how... <laughs> Or anxiety, you know, like, like, can, yeah, we're laughing about it, because I think we, we feel each other on this from, you know, um, but I think you know where I'm kind of going with that. Well, I, I you know, I, I think other people can speak better to that. Um, but I think certainly if you look at the history of Jews, there's always been a sense of threat. You know, there's always been this sense of never feeling fully accepted and fully settled. Um, and um, as Jews. So when you have, I think, that history of persecution and diaspora, um, I think it breeds certain psychological qualities, you know, about worry and being anxious and neurotic. And, you know, if you look at intergenerational trauma, you know, I think if you look at the history, at least to me, it doesn't feel like a huge shock that this would be some qualities that we would, you know, culturally associate with Jews because it has been and still is. I mean, and I, what, what really surprised me recently is because I grew up, you know, a pretty assimilated Jew and not very religious Jew. I've lived in communities for the most part, you know, where there were other Jews or, you know, where I didn't worry a whole lot about being Jewish. I mean, I've certainly have heard and encountered some things, but you know, it's not, my family doesn't come out of that history. So I feel I didn't get a lot of that in my own personal family. And I remember after um, the, the synagogue in Philadelphia, the shooting there. Um, yeah. And, and the alt-right stuff that was happening, that there was a level of fear about being a Jew that I had never experienced before. Mm. That it does feel still like it's like right below the surface and not not even below the surface um and all these global conspiracies again thinking it's always about the jews and the jewish global conspiracies mm. that it really raised for me in kind of a surprising way the amount of underlying fear um about this could turn for as, as well as Jews are doing in this country, you know, and, and that is all true. It just feels like in a moment it could turn. Mm. And I know that a lot of Jews live with that. I mean, that that is much more part of their daily experience or consciousness or right below their consciousness. It's not something that I generally do. Yeah, but you felt it then. But I felt it. Yeah. And, and so there is something about when you have thousands of years of persecution, and, and still what continues to circulate, um, you know, the Protocols of the Zion of Elders, which is, you know, this book, this anti-Semitic book, again, resurges as being on the bestseller list in places around the country. Mm. Like, it feels like it is still there. Mm. It is still there. And so there is a way in which um, this anxiety um, that Jews live with is not, I don't think simply, you know, historical trauma that we, we do live in a world that is still threatening and potentially even more threatening um, to Jews. And I, and I think too, as much as I can think as assimilated as I am and I can be as secular as I wanna be, if they're coming after Jews, they're coming after me. 
they're, they're not going to ask for, you know, like, well, when's the last time you went to synagogue? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so it was really striking the vulnerability that I experienced. Um, and it helped me relate better to other Jews who I know walk around with this vulnerability, you know, much more than I do. Closer. Yeah. Yeah. I so appreciate what you're saying because it reminds me also of like, you know, we can't imagine and know anyone's internal experience. We can only just sort of project based on our own perceptions or we can bear witness to. We can allow their space and curiosity about and invite perhaps in through our groundedness, through our safety and sense of connection of being able to just be in the present moment enough, holding the neuroticism, holding the anxiety, holding the real awareness that yes, there's some uncertainty there with also being present to being curious about someone else's experience that is, I feel, healing to this, um, to this place. Um, and, and, you know, it reminds me of, I have clients that are, that are black and, you know, one of my um, black clients in uh, New York is sort of saying, I, you know, these, these people, I was like, I, you know, I married someone who's white, you know, I, but they sort of are okay watching Netflix or having, you know, an ice cream or doing whatever. I never have a day when I don't have anxiety over what it's like to be on the street. I've never felt safe on the street. I never don't have, you know, one ear perked, you know, like the dog when, you know, you sort of like come someone, like you see the ear kind of pop up and just like, eh, you know, that that's not my experience to go into a relaxed state generally out there in the world. It's just never been. And I think that you're speaking to that, that that's there too, even if you have white racial advantage, um, that that can also be there. So again, not a false equivalency, but just naming that like right there, and that um, the difference I would say there is I may be feeling that inside as a Jewish person, but mostly if I'm walking around in a white body and other people aren't identifying me in a way that is racialized in a black body, that perhaps I have a protective factor there societally that someone in a black body who also feels that undercurrent of anxiety doesn't have. May not yeah, have. I think we need to be careful about that, but yes. Um, yes, yeah, certainly walking. I mean, there is no question walking around in a white body gives me all sorts of freedom um, uh, that black people don't experience from everything that I know about people. Yeah. But, and, and, and the piece that I really want to um, underscore what you were saying is about having the space to hear each other's stories and experiences. Um, I mean, I think that's really fundamentally what this is about. And coming back to recognizing our shared humanity and our shared interest in creating a just world. Um, you know, I think with any work and certainly with, with um, you know, Jews and, and, and um Blacks or Christians or um, Israelis and, and Palestinians, you know, the work that's always done is like, how do you re-see people's humanity? How do you understand their history and their stories? And again, put it in the perspective of, and what is the world we want to be creating? 
because it's not just about trying to get my safety and security or your safety and security or my humanity recognized or your humanity recognized. It's how do we create a world in which all of our humanity is recognized, mm. where all of us can feel safe, where all of us can thrive. And I always feel like anything that gets in the way of that is problematic. Mm. And so it's, it's, there are certainly steps we need to get there. And again, it's not about the bypassing of let's just recognize our full humanity and we're all human and we don't have to pay attention to anything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. So through, we need to be in, in it. Um, but it's holding on to that that process is about liberation. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. The process is about liberation. And as we kind of wind down here, I think that's really important to just remember that we're walking the path. I call it, you know, we're on the mindful path to becoming an embodied anti-racist. This is a path of becoming. And it's always sort of like this spiral that's expanding and our connection is growing and our ability to kind of be with more and our capacity, our window of tolerance, if we will, if, you're, if you will, if you're using our uh, somatic experiencing language, is increasing as we do more of the work and as we bear witness more to our own pain, mm -hmm. we have our greater capacity to bear it not only for um, others, but you know, for the world and not to feel like we have to hold it and solve it all necessarily, but to be able to be with it and that there's something reparative in that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Without, Absolutely. Yeah. Without the, the butt piece afterwards, but what about? <laughs> um, is there anything more that you might like to say, um, Dr. Diane Goodman, before we close um, uh, for our time together today? Yeah. Um, so um, just really the call for people to continue to hold complexity and nuance. Um, you know, as we've talked about, we can both experience oppression and privilege, um, and those intersect. Those don't happen in isolation, those happen in intersection. Um, but that we are complex human beings who, for many of us, do experience both, know what it is like on um, in different places, positionality on these power hierarchies that have been created in society. So to hold that complexity, um, and as you said, the more we do our own healing, the more we do our own learning, I believe it really does open us up um, to be able to hear and hold more. And again, staying clear about what are, what are our values and what is the world we want to be creating? Mm -hmm. And is what we're doing moving us towards that or is it creating a barrier to that? Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Dr. Diane Goodman, your website is uh, dianegoodman.com and she has training in facilitating, coaching and consulting, speaking and curriculum design and um, leads workshops, I guess online, but normally in person. I mean, it's COVID. So of course you're not. No, everything's um, online. But right, right, right. But that you're still available. And so people yes. can just find you dianegoodman.com and they can find me at maximeclarity.com, M-A-X-I-M-E. 
clarity as in clear seeing c-l-a-r-i-t-y.com and if you hit backslash resources you'll find a lot of links to anti-racism resources that i've just sort of randomly collated over the last few years including um, dr goodman's website so thank you so much diane always a pleasure and thank you for having this conversation it was a unique one and i appreciate um the fact that we can sort of explore the complexity of it together. Thank you so much.